Welcome to the Joan Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Vittengel. The purpose of Joan is to draw light towards mental health, to bring awareness and real stories to the trauma that most everyone endures at some point in life, from depression to postpartum depression, to anxiety and eating disorders, PTSD, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, addiction, the list goes on and on. Joan is meant to be a place of honesty and connection. Through the darkest days of my struggles, I'd never felt so alone, and I was convinced there was no way out. If you're feeling this way, I hope this podcast helps you to truly understand that you're not alone and that there is so much light at the end of the tunnel. The truth is, there is no right way to heal. But this podcast was created to inspire you to take your own steps towards healing and stepping into your most authentic self. Today, I'm speaking with my friend, Nicole DeBeau. We go through a lot, and Nicole is an incredible testament to being unbreakable. We speak on the passing of someone very important to her, her childhood caretaker. We then move into her high school rebellion when she was raped by an acquaintance and the shame and bullying that came with that. After high school, she moved to Africa to volunteer. Then she became a correspondent for Entertainment Tonight in Los Angeles. Then she and her boyfriend became unexpectedly pregnant. After giving birth, she fell into a deep depression where she had fully legitimized her suicide and found herself in a psychiatric hospital. She's now working her way through single motherhood while launching a business called The Femme, the female empowerment movement. This girl is incredible. I hope you enjoy and that Nicole gives you some inspiration to turn your pain into purpose and to remind you that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Which is what what we're doing. Great. Let's be raw. Let's be raw. <laughs> okay. So we're recording. Okay. And I'm here with my friend Nicole DeBeau. That's how you say yeah, Deboe. Thanks for asking. So many people butcher it. I was called Deboob as a child, so thank you. Well, because it's B O U B, right? Yeah, it's D A B O U B. Yeah, yeah. I have a stage last name, which is D A B E A U. Uh huh. So it gets very confusing. And that's from your yes, my time on television. I was actually working for Entertainment Tonight, and they offered me a contract and said, "Hey." We're ready to do this, but <laughs> let's talk about your last name. Oh, my God. Yeah, because if you actually look at it, and if yeah. you were in the Middle East, which right. is where it originates from, it would be Dubu. Um, But as the family migrated, the pronunciation was changed. So it's not French. It's not French. No. But no. My I mean, dad do actually, most people assume it's French? Um, most people do, French. because now Dubu sounds right. very French. And of course, my parents... Named me Nicole Cherie. So Nicole okay. Cherie DeBeau sounds incredibly French. Yeah. But actually, my dad's family is from Palestine. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. No way. Oh, yeah. It's pretty crazy. So it's mm-hmm. DeBoob. It's, I mean, it would be. But, oh. I mean, it's, it was changed before okay. Okay. my dad okay. was ever born. Okay. So, well, yes. Is... But I do have a large family in the Middle East that probably go by DeBoob. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is entirely irrelevant to yes. what we're talking about. <laughs> but um, I'm going to, well, Nicole kind of just introduced herself, but um, how old are you? I am, oh my gosh, whoa, 34. Okay. <gasps> That's so weird. <laughs> I actually just kind of forgot, which I think is good. That's good. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. I don't really feel 34 or even know what that means, yeah. but yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So you have primarily what 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 I kind of approached you about was post postpartum depression. Yep. But you've gone through several things, and I think most people have. Like, just diff- there's so many different levels to mental health and to trauma and to you know. And as I was saying earlier, I try to avoid labels because, you know, it just puts us all in a box in a way, and it's like. I don't believe that any mental illness is a life sentence, personally. Mm-hmm. Agree, agree, yeah. So I think that putting a label on it really kind of creates this space that doesn't really allow people to step out of. And I don't think a lot of people know that either. I think a lot of people are diagnosed with something and it's like, you know, I'm depressed for the rest of my life. And it's like, mm, that's not entirely true. Well, yeah, I mean, we live in a world where the medical community has loved labeling us. Right. And while it may not have been for the worst reasons I think it was more so just for them to have a basic understanding of things I do think that it's had a a poor effect on society as a whole yeah Yeah, we're all walking around going I'm depressed I'm anxious Mm -hmm. I'm sad I'm happy you know Mm -hmm. and it's great to have these these basic um understandings of our Mm -hmm. emotions but when we start to make our emotions more than just emotions Mm -hmm. and really like who we are, then we kind of get into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us about, I like to start with your upbringing. Uh Uh-huh. My upbringing. (laughs) Where did you grow up? I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes. Oh my God, you're Texas girl. Yes. From a Palestinian El Salvadorian father. Whoa. Yeah. So his family's Palestinian, but he was born and raised in El Salvador. Whoa. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. It's pretty crazy. My dad has or had many amazing stories. I um, bet. Yeah. Jeez. And then my mom is from Mississippi. Um, girl, <laughs> another southern girl. Yeah. So um grew up in Dallas and had a fairly normal upbringing Mm -hmm. um I did work in television Mm -hmm. as a young child actor oh did you yeah so I'd say that that definitely shaped um a lot of um like future self-worth issues um that I went through in high school which I'm sure we'll talk about but yeah at nine years old I kind of just fell into um acting okay and fell into I really mean seriously. I didn't really have interest in it. My sister loved to act, was taking some acting classes at a huge studio in Dallas. I went to pick her up one day, an agent saw me, and then all of a sudden I was going in to meet with her and booking auditions. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was very organic. It was very organic, um, but it did lead to a a nice long career. Um, That being said, I quit the industry (laughs) because I wanted to have a normal life. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when you're 9, 10, 11 years old and you're doing something that's different from everyone else, even if it's awesome, young girls don't appreciate that. And so I was bullied. You were. Picked on. I remember going to summer camp and, like, people kind of laughing at me. Or I'd want to talk about what I was doing, but no one really understood it, nor did they want to talk about it. Were you on TV at that age? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like... People knew who you were or they knew... Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a regular on a show or anything, Mm -hmm. but I had agents in New York, L.A. I was traveling all over the country, working. I was still able to be in school, but missed a lot of it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, kids at school definitely knew what was going on. Yeah. I don't know that I was recognizable or anything on the street. Yeah. It was more so just like... 
you know, those, those groups of friends that you see every day in the classroom mm-hmm. and just feeling like, oh, wait, there's something different mm-hmm. about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, that was, I mean, in my upbringing, I'd say that that was something that definitely stands out as being different. But my parents are still married. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all was well. I did, however, have like a third caregiver uh, who was my parents made before my sister, my older sister was even born. And then she became our babysitter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So, how, so how, how frequently was she around? All the time. Okay. Her name was Val. She's like the love of my life. I honestly think that um, I am who I am mostly because of her. Love you, mom and dad. But she just had, and they know this. I mean, she just had such a tremendous effect on on me and my sister. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a single mom of eight kids. Wow. Yeah, raising them in, you know, one of the worst communities in Dallas. And worst, I mean, one of the most dangerous and lower income communities. So she faced a lot of challenges, but she showed up just with a huge smile on her face, so full of love. Mm. She was so present and, um, yeah, she really just was an angel. Yeah. Something I learned, I did the, do you know the Hoffman process? Have you heard of the no, Hoffman you process? know, I've heard people talking about this, but I'm not okay. familiar. Yeah. I did the Hoffman process. I'll explain it to you later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Offline. <laughs> but, um, something, you know, it really has you diving into your your childhood and your upbringing and your parents, but mm. something that they they um, they really have you go into is to have you look at other caretakers in your life. So you know everybody's talking about their parents, but they're like, if you had a nanny, or if there was someone else who's prominent in your childhood, that person is just as important. There's so much subconscious behavior and and just everything that we pick up on from whomever is around in our yeah. childhood. Mm-hmm. So oh yeah, she essentially is as important as totally she was a third and parent. she was there when you were born i mean she, oh, she's been around since you were born since i was born yeah. since before i was born you know so that energy was already in the family yeah. um yeah and she was around a lot and i just remember especially when i was acting her kind of being my rock you know and i could come home from school and like express what i was going through to her and she was always there to listen Mm -hmm. and to remind me, you know, Mm -hmm. that I was special and wonderful and, Mm -hmm. you know, just to not really listen to everyone else. So Mm -hmm. yeah, she, um, a lot of my memories are with Val. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you mentioned that Mm -hmm. she passed. Yeah. So, um, when I was, gosh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to pinpoint how old I was. I always say 13, but then I think I could have been 11 or 12. I don't know. That's something I'll look into. But um, yeah, she had cancer. And I remember the day she was diagnosed. And of course, when anybody ever is diagnosed with with a serious illness, we all hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I'd say that I think it was a couple, two or three years following, she was just slowly declining. So and was she still around then? Um, she was around. Yeah. I mean, she was still working for my family, but because she was so sick, we started to have to bring in other sitters to watch us and, um, or help around the house or whatever it was or no. So I guess if she passed when I was somewhere between 11 and 13, then it would have been around eight or nine when she was, 
I would have been that old when she was diagnosed. Yeah. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so um, I just remember, you know, questioning and wondering why she's not there and what's going on. And I think my mom and dad wanted to protect us from, you know, how serious the reality was um, and how sick she was. And I understand that. <laughs> but now that I'm a parent, you know, I, I really want to make sure that I'm as transparent mm-hmm. as possible with my child mm-hmm. and on the good and bad parts of life, if you even want to call them good mm-hmm. and bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we were kind of shielded from everything. And then I remember we were leaving for summer camp and my mom said, you know, I think we're going to go see Val before we go to summer camp this year. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen her in what felt like years, but it must have been around six months. And we went over there and I was eager. I had always told Val that I wanted to see where she lived. And I think she was a little bit ashamed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always wanted to go to a gospel Sunday church with her, (laughs) like Sunday mass. Mm -hmm. Um, And we went to her house and uh, we like walked back to her room and she was lying in bed watching soap operas like she always was. And it was a TV my parents had given her and a bed my parents had given her. And she was a very large woman. And she weighed probably, I would guess, around 85 pounds. And, you know, I just, I remember my dad cried and I had like never really seen my dad cry before. Oh my gosh, it's so intense. But you know, that was, that was the last time I ever saw Val alive. And it's like even thinking about it, you know, we just don't realize, like, I just go through the motions as an adult. And of course I know how much I love her, but there's still just all of this that lives inside me around my love for her and and the grief that I still feel, you know, it's, it's all still there. Yeah. So, so after she passed, what was that like? You know, when you do you remember? You, you oh, I remember everything. So like, we went to summer camp. Well, after we saw her, we all sat in my mom's car and all of us cried. It was my mom, my dad, my sister, and I, and we were just sobbing. And I said, "Listen, while we're at summer camp, we have to get Val a new TV, because the TV was kind of going fuzzy." And I'm like, "She can't be lying in bed watching soap operas on that TV." So promise me that while I'm gone, we're gonna get her a new TV. And my mom and dad are like, okay, we'll do it, we'll do it. And I just kind of went into this place of action. Like, how can I make this better? You know, and feeling like I could save the situation. And um, I went to summer camp and I also told my parents, listen, if something happens to Val while I'm gone, you have to tell me. I don't care about summer camp. And, you know, went through summer camp, didn't hear anything. My parents come to pick me up on the last day. It's three weeks long. And um, we do our whole closing day, fun experiences. We get in the car. And just the mood was super somber. And I was kind of like, what's going on? And my mom's like, we have to tell you that Val died. Mm. And I will never forget this moment for the rest of my life. Because I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. I felt very um, lied to. and Because they didn't tell you. Because they didn't tell me. And I just looked out the window. You know, we're driving through just the plains of Texas. And I just was 
bawling, crying, thinking like, all I want to do is talk to Val right now. And um, I think that that moment caused like a lot of resentment for me because after that and feeling like I couldn't trust my parents um, and losing the person who really was just like my lifeline, you know, I just loved her so much. I felt very alone. And I'd say that that was the turning point in my life. And after that, I just kind of went down a dark road. Well, and this is what we were just talking about, how you were saying it's, you feel it's important to be transparent with your daughter because it's such an old way of thinking to think that kids don't need to be sheltered from that kind of thing. And it's yeah. like, no, they're so aware. They're so in tune. It's so important to be upfront because then it creates... There's so much to then it, the resentment, uh, you know, suppressing sadness or anger, whatever that is, mm-hmm. not creating that space for your child to have that is like, I mean, you know, as you, now you're talking about how it, it shaped kind oh, of the rest of your life. It shaped the rest of my life. Absolutely. And also now as an adult, I'm like, gosh, I really would have loved to have spent those last six months with Val, helping her and being a part of that, that end of her life, you know, instead of being sheltered from it and not knowing. And also it created a, a, a sense of shock, mm-hmm. you know, just to go in there and see her that sick. Yeah. And the last time I had seen her, she was Val. Um, so the whole situation just felt very unsafe. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. I haven't actually talked about it. It's so long. It's good. Yeah, it's right? so good. I mean, I've been through years of therapy talking about this. But it's amazing but, how it comes up, and mm-hmm. you still obviously have so oh. many emotions about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so many emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the timeline is very fuzzy, but, like, I could just say that from that point forward, ugh, it was just a mess. I was a mess. So you you were at an age where you were moving into high school, right? I was moving into high school. Which is rough. I was rebelling. <laughs> yeah, it's already so tough for yeah. parents. My poor parents. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they did the best they could. And I was just... Yeah. I was not in a good place. How were you rebelling? <laughs> like, what was that like? Um, You know, I was drinking, going out, dating boys from public school. Mm-hmm. You know, staying out past curfew, sneaking out. Um Ooh, excuse me. Um, you know, yeah, smoking cigarettes. Yeah. All those things. The classics. The classics, but yeah. I also was just kind of a little bitch. Sorry, but like I was just, you know, there was no, um, like what's the, like containing me. Like, you know, the, the harder they tried, the more I resisted. So it wasn't easy. Um, and I, you know, I went to an all-girls Catholic private school in Dallas. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, looking back, such a wonderful education. I have lifelong friendships from there. I was so lucky to mm-hmm. have that education and that experience. But at the time, oh, it was like, I went out of here. Send me to public school. I don't want to be here. Yeah. Um, and then I, yeah, I, I think my freshman year, I met a jock. He was a football player, baseball player, you name it, from one of the public schools. And that was just a really horrible, toxic relationship. Um, He was going, he was 
going through abuse in his own family and I experienced it and witnessed it and so therefore made excuses for him then carrying that on abuse to me. Um, so I was in this abusive relationship, you know, just not a positive high school experience at all. Um, and then I'd say another big turning point that came in high school was I was actually in a relationship with this guy and went out drinking one night, underage drinking in Dallas, you know, at like the sushi bar that you like <laughs> always get raided by the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission. <laughs> um, but somehow they kept serving us. And um, yeah, went out, got way too drunk. And, you know, it's a long story, but woke up hours later with some guy that I knew having sex with me while I was passed out. You woke up during or after? During. Mm-hmm. So you came to? I came to because someone was banging on the door. Yeah. So there's. I was at the sushi restaurant, was carried into a car, taken to a pit stop house where the guys were figuring out what everyone was going to do. While I was throwing up, one guy was like making out with me, which is so disgusting. Ugh. Another guy. Another guy. Um, making out with me while I was puking. And then I remember being put back in the car. And then they, we went to a La Quinta motel <laughs> because in high school in Texas, people drink there. Um, sorry, La Quinta. And then, <laughs> and, then, um, and then I remember being in this hotel room and there were two double beds and the TV was on and someone was like laughing about drugs or something and I was kind of in and out of it and I remember one guy there I trusted and I was like just make sure I'm okay and then I passed out and then I wake up to this banging on the door and it took me a minute to come to and really grasp what was happening but I look up and this guy that I know is naked on top of me the one you trusted no different different one. one different one I knew all of the guys there um and I was like, well, what's happening? He gets up. And I can feel that he's inside me. And he, like, gets up and pulls out and runs to the door. And he's naked. And he opens the door. And they're like, dude, your girlfriend's on the phone. And I knew his girlfriend really well. And I'm like, oh, my God, wait, what's going on? And I'm still, I mean, you're still so drunk at this point. You know, like, it's the middle of the night. Um... And everyone's kind of laughing. And then I just, I I don't know if I went back to sleep or what happened, but I was so just like, what, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the next morning I woke up and I went to breakfast with the guy that I trusted and some friends. And I said, you know, I, I think, I think I haven't even said his name out loud, which I actually just searched him on Facebook the other day. And it was so interesting. I said, I think so-and-so was having sex with me. I think, is that, I think I was raped. And they're like, oh, Nicole, you can't, you can't just throw around that word. I mean, you weren't raped. And then it quickly spread that, you know, I was talking about the possibility of me being raped by this guy. And, um, and I told my, my boyfriend at the time, he was pretty pissed 
Um, and so I went to stay at a good friend's house because I was so sad. People were like, call, you know, prank calling me. And I was just trying to make sense of everything. And while we were asleep at her parents' house, a bunch of, I don't know if it was the guy's girlfriend or who, but a bunch of kids jumped her parents' fence and we woke up and my car had slut written all over it and shoe polish and whore and yeah. And so I just kind of thought, okay, well, I'm not going to talk about this anymore. So his girlfriend found out about it? Is oh, that, yeah. I, so it was oh, like, yeah. You were the bad, you were I was, the bad yeah. one. I was the bad one. I was, I was the slut. And I remember he told people that I wanted it. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had my tongue pierced at the time. That's another way I rebelled. And I remember him like making up some story about my tongue ring or something. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. So how did you carry that? I mean, how did that, how did that kind of transpire within you, you know? Right. Well, I think for me also, and something that people need to understand in this current climate with so many women, you know, talking about, um, assault that has happened years ago is let's see if I'm 34 now, this would have been almost 20 years ago. And back at that time, Rape as we know it didn't really exist. Rape was like, oh, I've been beaten up in an alley, Mm -hmm. you know, and left bloodied and bruised and raped, Mm -hmm. right? This whole date rape thing wasn't Mm -hmm. that discussed, right? So I remember just kind of suppressing, moving forward, doing what I had to do to get through high school. And then Peter Jennings, do you remember Peter Jennings? Yeah. Yeah, he was an amazing journalist. Yeah, yeah. he did a special on date rape. And I think I was to, must have been a senior in high school at this time. And I lied in bed late at night watching it. And I remember just bawling, crying. And all of a sudden it was like, holy, holy shit, I, wa- I was raped. Um, but, you know. <laughs> because you took it on. You, you started to believe that it was your fault. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, or that who you does it? in it? Honestly, I don't know many women that have been raped that don't go through a period of time of questioning um, their role in the entire situation. Um, you know, I was drunk. Maybe, maybe I was so drunk. I did invite it on. Even if, even if that was the situation, it's still rape. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was throwing up in a toilet. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew how drunk I was. Um, but I know that that isn't the situation. These are just, you know, different scenarios that I think, victims like to create in their minds because our ego can be very powerful and you know um keeping us small um but yeah um I think I thank Peter Jennings for that special that he did and I remember so vividly just lying in that bed realizing that it did in fact happen and he talked about young women actually pressing charges and how no you know especially at that time, nobody was doing that Mm -hmm. and how it was hard for, um, anyone to be found guilty because the lines were so blurred. Exactly. He said, she said, exactly. Um, and now here we are with millions of women coming forward with stories very similar from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what's really heartbreaking is that all of us collectively have carried that trauma Mm -hmm. and that, that guilt for this long. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My God. I know. It's actually really, really crazy. It is. And, you know, I, we talked about this before, but with the Me Too movement, 
didn't say anything. I still, this is the first time I've said, I mean, I've talked about it with friends and people that know and love me, but I haven't shared on social media or on any public facing platform, um, anything about my rape story because I still carry around this sense of shame. Um, and it's really intense to like share with people that you've been raped. Mm -hmm. The word sounds Mm, really intense. Can we like create a different word? (laughs) I know. But then is there another word that's actually as appropriate? Right. I don't know. It's it's just like, like it's a very piercing word. Yeah. Um, very. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I was telling you, I'm like, I'm a very open woman. Um, I've been through a lot of shit in my life and I'm very clear on now. Now I'm very clear on why I've been through all that shit. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm very open. Like I love to talk about what I've been through because I think that vulnerability is what provides healing for, Mm -hmm. for other people. Um, when we, when we really talk about our trauma and and our stories and also healing for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, that being said, never shared this story. So if I haven't, how many other women haven't? I mean, millions, millions. millions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very exciting. Like I'm all for um, what's happening. And, but it is intense. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize how, especially, and I hate to say this because you know, there are men who've experienced it too, but right. The reality is that it's Uh, mostly women, mostly women. Absolutely. And that, you just don't know until you've experienced something like that. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. In any situation, in with mental health, with trauma, whatever it is, I mean, you can never real, truly understand what someone's gone through. And the rape thing, I mean, this, this, this whole Me Too movement, it's just like, it's so unbelievable. And to have this many people coming out in, in, in the army that's, ha- that's happening, but then for them to still be doubted is just like, Oh, it's such a slap in the face. It's really such a slap in the face. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, every single person on this planet internalizes their experiences differently. Mm -hmm. So for us to like assume that we all experience loss the same way or that we should experience something the same way is just insane yeah you know like there could be something that feels very insignificant to one person but to the next it shapes the rest of their life Mm -hmm. so whether it's something serious like rape Mm -hmm. or bullying which some people would say oh come on you know like Mm -hmm. it's just bullying Mm -hmm. kids are committing suicide over bullying yeah you know so it's like just All I can say is like empathy and compassion, people. Mm -hmm. You know, we never understand how somebody is is experiencing something, Mm -hmm. what stories people are making up about stuff, Mm -hmm. you know? So like just just love. Mm -hmm. Just love other people. I know. I'm like, all there is is love. (laughs) There's certain I I think I was talking about earlier to someone about how there's a lot of celebrities coming forward right now telling their stories, which I think is really powerful because so many people look up to celebrities in a way. It's mm-hmm. like everyone's always trying to be perfect like them. So when when their opening up Giselle Bunchen just released a book. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just watched the film A Star is Born. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. 
It's really intense. Yeah. And now I don't want to spoil anything. Don't spoil it! No, you just gave me this look. I'm like, no, don't say anything. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna cut that part out. Don't say anything. No. Have you seen yeah. Have you seen the old one? No. It's a remake. Yeah, I know. I know. There's like two. There's two, there's old, two ones. old ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Judy Garland was in the first one, and Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. was in the second. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing, but it's really intense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna cut that out. Yep. Um. Okay, so let's move forward and talk about. So, was there anything else? Do you feel like from after that experience, you know, you were. You watched the Peter Jennings thing mm-hmm. towards high school. Did you go to college? I did, but I didn't finish. Okay. That's when I moved out to LA. Okay. I was ready to be out of Dallas. Um, and I went to a little, at the time it was a junior college. Now it's a, a four-year school, but um, called Marymount College in Palos Verdes. And again, I mean, I was still in this, um, this rebelling phase, this low self-worth you know, partying too much, not, not focused on school. Um, yeah. So I didn't finish school. It's funny. I think about that quite a bit. I'm like, huh, what, maybe one day I'll go back Mm. just because I'm, you know, I'm creating a business. I, I'm incredibly smart. I have tons of ideas and it's not like, I think that not, that not having a degree is holding me back. But more so just for my own little mm-hmm. sense of achievement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I get it. That little, I did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved out here. Mm-hmm. And did you go straight into the entertainment industry? Um, no. No. I had way too much fun in college. I moved down to Newport Beach mm. briefly. Okay. And... Um, you know, I was in a lot of like, re- like long-term relationships. Again, I think that low self-worth just kind of like bouncing to the next mm-hmm. person to fill the cup that I wasn't filling myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I, I mean, I guess I got back into the industry around 1920 and was just kind of going to auditions here and there, but it wasn't until, oh, well, there was actually a really positive <laughs> experience in all of this. Um, I think that this is because of Val, but when I was young, I became obsessed with going to Africa. Okay. I know. You're like, where is this going? (laughs) But when I was young, my parents can even, I mean, my mom would tell you, like, Nicole has always loved Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's because Val you know, was a single mom of eight kids and I just saw her struggle. And then while all of that was happening at my school, we had this Ugandan dance group come in and they they did this whole performance and they were talking about, you know, sponsoring kids in Uganda. And I just, again, felt this sense of like purpose, like I'm going to help You know, and I very much wanted to help Val and I've always been this little philanthropist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it was like, okay, you know, I'm going to help these kids in Uganda. And I was the youngest um, in my family. And so I went home and first was like, mom, dad, let's adopt a kid from Africa. And they're like, what? And then I was like, well, let's sponsor one. So then Val passed away and I went through this dark time in my life. And when I was in my early 20s, I was seeing an amazing therapist and we were doing a lot of work around, like you said, you know, these caregiver stories Mm -hmm. and grief and all of that. 
And I noticed that after Val died, I I quit doing everything that I loved, right? So I quit acting, I quit dancing, I quit sports. I used to love basketball. Um, And so we started working on um, introducing more of these hobbies into my life and really getting in touch with what it was that I wanted to be doing. Because, you know, in your 20s, everyone's like, what's my purpose? Mm -hmm. What am I meant to be doing? Mm -hmm. And so she said, what's one thing you've always wanted to do that you've never done? I said, well, I've always wanted to go to Africa. (laughs) (laughs) So she sent me home with a little homework said, I want you to research some places to go and come back next week with a list. And no joke, within a month, my bags were packed and I was moving to Africa. So when I was 20, oh how old God. was I? I think I was 22. This would have been in 2008, so mm-hmm. I can't do math right now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, I moved to Africa. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and that was, for me, just like, oh. It was um, a moment that really healed me in a lot of ways, you know? It's like I was there and I felt so at home. And again, I had this sense of purpose that was so much bigger than me. You know, I do believe that when we're feeling down, if we just focus out, yeah, me too. We can really heal ourselves. We just become so obsessed with like yeah. everything happening in our own heads and yeah. our own stories. Well, yeah. that's how what I felt about mental health I remember having this realization one day that I was so in my head and so in a way I remember describing it to someone I was like in a way my my um you know my experience with panic attacks and and anxiety has been incredibly selfish Mm -hmm. and I can remember thinking to myself the only thing that actually makes me feel better is the thought of helping other people there you go. Just the thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> now go do it, yeah, right? Yeah. And then you just feel exponentially better. Yeah. It's amazing what um, helping other people mm-hmm. can do for ourselves. And not that that ever you ever want that to be the intention, but then again, like why not do something that's taking care of yourself yeah. and other people yeah. at the same time? Yeah, I agree. It's all collective. It's all collective. Yeah. yeah. So and where, I encourage everyone to go to Africa, by the I'm way. Dying to I, go. I lived in Zambia and Zimbabwe and for oh, how long? You know, I was there for like four or five months. Wow. But I went for however I think I, I was planning on going for a month and then I just extended my trip. And I taught a sixth grade class there. At one point in my life, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, And so I actually studied it briefly in college. And so I knew how to, you know, design a curriculum. And Mm -hmm. the the students that I worked with, there was a sixth grade class and a first grade class being taught together in an outside classroom with one chalkboard. And I walked in and grabbed the headmistress and said, okay, wait a second. I can take the sixth grade class. They speak really good English. Let me do it. Um, and so I did. And I think there, I had 26 students. I still remember almost all of them um, wow. by name. And they all just <laughs> became a second family or a third family to me because Val's family. So I just, um, yeah, I, I think about them all the time. So I was there teaching them. I remember when I left, they were was so emotional. I was like, oh, teacher, teacher, please come back. Please come back. And I said, I promise you I'm coming back. And so I came back to the States and was super depressed. 
the just the shock of being back home was really hard. It was it was really hard to make sense of how much we waste. I remember I got off the plane. I had a pit stop at London Heathrow and I I get off the little jetway or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. And everyone's at like a, a Borders and Books or a Barnes and Noble, just like buying books in the airport, just perusing. Oh, yeah, look, here's a book. And all my students wanted was a book. You know, you ask them because I would do these pop quizzes every week and whoever got the highest score would would get a prize. Okay, well, what do you what do you kids want? Kids in America would be like a Game Boy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, whatever it is. And they're like, we just we just want books. And then I just saw everyone reading books and I just lost it. Oh, my God. That makes me cry. Yeah. And then just watching people like take a few bites of a sandwich and then throw the rest in the trash or. You know, and listen, we're not to blame for it, but that is very hard to digest and understand when you've just spent so much time immersed in this world where, like, <laughs> it's not that easy, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, um, yeah, it was really difficult for me coming home and trying to get back into the swing of things in L.A., and so I started a little grassroots nonprofit called Zambia Smiles and just really reached out to friends and family and started raising money. And I, would, I didn't know you were such an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I've had ideas for quite a long time. But yeah, I would Western Union the money to the headmistress no in Zambia. And then she would have the students write thank you letters and I would you know, email them to everyone that donated. And so we did that for a year. And then I flew back to Zambia and surprised all the kids. And that was a moment that I'll remember forever and ever and ever. And now these kids are probably 25. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably all adults, but I do want to get back there. But yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. Amazing. If you ever go back, let me know. Yeah. I would love to go. Oh, actually, we're planning a trip back for the FEM, which is the business that I'm creating. We'll get into that. We'll talk more about that. that. (laughs) But yeah, I just, you know, I thank Val so much for, and my parents. I mean, my parents are just such giving people. They both come from nothing. And my dad built a successful business. And like, they've always just been givers. I mean, mm-hmm. they gave Val and her kids, her eight kids are like my brothers and sisters. Really? When we were growing up, they oh, were always amazing. in our house. When we'd go out of town, they'd have the house. So like, I just was raised in this environment of giving and mm-hmm. empathy and mm-hmm. compassion mm-hmm. and love. And I'm just so grateful for That's that amazing. because despite everything I've been through, that remains, Yeah, you know, yeah. so yeah. it's great. Mm-hmm. So after Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love this. We're going through my whole life story. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm an open book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So after Africa, then what? After Africa, um, that's around when I got back into the industry. Okay. That's where we were going with yeah. this. Yeah. Always get sidetracked by Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I came back and I think I just had this renewed sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I, that was also, that also marked the beginning of this, this really important journey to self-love, right? It's like, oh, I was yes. dipping my toes in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I came back and really started experimenting 
with what I wanted to do. And uh, there was a book called Dreams Into Action. I believe the author has passed. It was written for actors or artists, but basically it was about how like the average human changes their career seven or eight times or something along those lines and how you can have this dream or this vision of what you want to be doing, but how do you actually take that and make it a reality. I think he even says like a dreamer isn't actually a, a good thing unless you you take action. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I did these little um, exercises that are in the book with a journal. And I got really clear that I wanted to get back into television. And that the only reason I wasn't doing it is because I was so bullied when I was young. And so I thought, and because Val died and I had mm-hmm. just shut down that part of me. And um, yeah, I went on Google. I, I researched um, hosting classes or TV hosting boot camps and I found one um, and went. And then the woman who runs the hosting boot camp signed me. <laughs> she was a manager. She's still my manager, which is crazy. And I just started working, um, which was awesome. I mean, I think because I had had the experience when I was young, I was great on a Mm -hmm, teleprompter, mm -hmm, (laughs) which mm -hmm. most people aren't. Um, And also, you know, you kind of, this was right when people were starting to brand themselves. Mm -hmm. And we're like, why do we need to brand ourselves? Which is still so ridiculous that we have to, or we don't have to, but that that's where we're headed or where we are. Um, And she's like, so if you were to brand yourself, you know, what would your brand be? And I mean, so much respect for these young ladies, but almost every woman in the room raised her hand and was like, fashion, celebrity, da 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 And I was like, um, something to do with traveling to Africa and changing the world? <laughs> She's like, who are you? <laughs> what? I'm like, I don't know, something about um, traveling for change or like making an impact, you know? And so... Clearly, I stood out, and then I also had the talent to boot, and so she signed me. And Amazing. Um, yeah, but then I, of course I started working in fashion and entertainment, right, 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 right. I was like, <laughs> and okay. all the things. Yeah. <laughs> like, wait, this isn't what I wanted to yeah, be doing. Yeah. But you know, they're all stepping stones. Yeah, and they were all awesome yeah. to be a part of. Yeah. So how long were you in the industry for? Because you're not really. Are you, are you still in it? Yeah, I'm still in it. I mean, okay. I just shot a commercial a couple of weeks ago. Okay. But it's not my. It's not my passion. Yeah. I think also, <clears throat> you know, you're in this industry where, um, unless you've made this brand and this name for yourself, then I felt very much like I was being controlled by the networks um, that mm. I was working for and. Once I had my daughter, I, you know, I quickly realized that if I was going to be away from her, it better be, you know, for something that I was really, really inspired mm-hmm. um, by. So, yeah, I went, I, I went back to work. I was working for Fox Sports when I found out I was pregnant. And I was also hosting an international travel show called Awesome Adventures. So that was funny. <laughs> I remember we tried to go to Alaska and we were going to go to that famous glacier in Alaska. My mind's blanking, but I was six months pregnant or something, so I couldn't do it. Um, But yeah, I was, I was hosting those two shows when I found out I was pregnant and then had Charlie, my daughter, Mm -hmm. who's now almost three and went back to work at Fox sports. I mean, 
about seven weeks, eight weeks after she was born. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into this. Yeah. So you experienced pretty intense postpartum depression. I experienced the most severe. Okay. I mean, I'm sure there's worse, but it, I mean, it was a life, life or death depression. It was really did you bad. Did you experience anything, what do they call it, pre-partum? Pre- mm- Prenatal? Prenatal? Prenatal. <laughs> Prepartive? <laughs> um, no. So interestingly, I was so happy pregnant. Not the first trimester. I mean, that was tough. Mm-hmm. I was super sick. And Charlie was also a surprise. Okay. So my partner and I had only been together for a year. I have endometriosis, had had surgery for it had convinced myself that I would like only get pregnant if I had another surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, when I found out I was pregnant, I was 31 and I'm like, all right, I'm doing this. This is meant to be. Yeah. Um, where was I going with that? Um, that you were super happy through. Oh yeah. I was super, I was super happy. I actually f- felt for the, maybe the first time really connected to my feminine. Mm which was so nice. I was always a tomboy. And I think a lot of that had to do with um, kind of in a way the trauma I had been through. The suppressing suppressing of emotions. Yeah, the the suppressing of self. Yeah. You know, just shove that down there and get through it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I just felt so feminine and maternal. And... um, I would sit and color in adult coloring books and listen to kundalini yoga chants and like, you know, have diffusers going in the house. And like It was a whole thing. I loved it. I loved it. So, you know, I, I remember people talking about the possibility of postpartum depression. And yes, knowing that I had been through such a, so many things in my life, I was a little bit concerned Mm -hmm. but also just was in such a good place that it felt like there wasn't a chance so how long after her birth Mm. did you start to what was what 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 was the timeline like or what were the what were the symptoms when did right did you just start to notice what was going on well okay so Hmm, that's that's interesting. I'd say I was actually diagnosed about six weeks after she was born, mm-hmm. so it was fast. It was soon, yeah. Yeah. That being said, I did um, eat my placenta mm-hmm. um, just in smoothies after she was born, so that definitely provided a little bit of an up. Um, Could you feel that physically? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. The placenta is very powerful. Okay. It gives you an energy boost. Because I know that that's a bit of a controversial yeah. thing. Yeah, which is so funny because animals, like a- animals eat their placentas. Yeah. <laughs> We're animals. Yeah. Hello, yeah. in case anyone didn't know. Yeah. Um, and I understand if a woman doesn't want to do it, great. Yeah. But if a woman does want to do it, why are we judging? Right. It's so interesting. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that helped a lot. But then I remember my partner went back to work. And you, that was when shit hit the fan. You know, I mean, you're just sitting at home feeding this little blob, you know, and breastfeeding was so hard. Mm -hmm. My nipples were scabbed and bleeding. I mean, it was so challenging. Mm -hmm. And I just felt really isolated. 
And then I remember, I think the biggest sign was that my partner would come home from work and I'd spend hours convincing him that we should separate. Like I was like, this was the worst idea ever. What were we thinking? This is such a bad idea. Oh my gosh. And he, in the beginning, of course, was just like, okay, like this, you know, I don't think this was a bad idea. But listen, I mean, you convince someone of something day after day after day, eventually they're going to believe you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And so I remember one day we're sitting on this little day bed in our, in our daughter's nursery. And he's like, you know, you've been talking about this so much. I'm really starting to believe you. And I was like, well, good. I'm glad you're believing me, you know? And, and, um, it was really just this like sadness, this sense of regret, like, this is not the way it's meant to be. This is not what was meant to happen. And I remember our midwife said to me, stop wishing things are, are different, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what causes depression mm-hmm. when we when we reject our reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, she noticed it first. I had the most amazing midwife ever who I love. And she said, okay, all right, you've got postpartum depression. I need you to call this woman right away. And we called um, a therapist who specializes in postpartum and we started seeing her. And right off the bat, she said to me, listen, you've got some, you've got some pretty serious postpartum depression. I'm going to recommend that you get on meds. And was that solely just like you wanting to end your relationship? Were there, was there oh, there anything? was more. It was sadness. It was just like... Was there anything coming up for you around your daughter where like their thoughts oh, around no. you not wanting her or anything like that? You know, ugh, luckily that didn't happen for me. I know so many women yeah. that go through that yeah. and oh, I just... It really breaks my heart. Yeah. Um, no, I felt super connected to Charlie. Yes, it was exhausting and excruciating and like... There were moments of, oh my God, what have I gotten myself mm-hmm. into? Um, but no, okay. no, I never went through that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, you just, you just were sad, like lack of- I was just sad and overwhelmed and isolated and lonely and confused and, you know, um, really was kind of like pushing everyone that loved me away from me. Like stay, you didn't stay away. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those were the signs. So when did um, so you started seeing the therapist? Started seeing How the therapist soon into the pregnancy or the the motherhood. Most, yeah, yeah. Motherhood. Um, the, ooh, I would say I started seeing her around when Charlie was six weeks old. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because we started. Yeah, Charlie was born on November twelfth, and we started seeing her right before the new year. Okay. And I remember my partner had asked his mom to send him um, some like family diamonds or jewels because he was planning on proposing to me while all of our family, both of our families were in town for Christmas Mm. and my depression was so bad. And I had spent so long pushing him away that when they came to town, he, he didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which then just makes your depression depression so much worse. I'm like, wait a second, what have I done? How did you know that? Did he tell you that? Yeah, he told me. You know, after the fact. So there started. So it sounds like there was like resentment, kind of. Oh, I mean, listen, depression rates are higher when the pregnancy is unexpected. When people aren't married, Mm -hmm. depression rates are higher. So like, 
depression rates are higher when the woman has been through sexual trauma. You know, I mean, we... (laughs) Yeah, we've covered all the bases. We've covered all the bases. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, I mean, yes, we both were not signed up for for Mm -hmm. what was happening. We were thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Mm -hmm. And I do have to say, even if postpartum depression um, isn't a factor, a lot of couples... (laughs) Go into parenthood thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Mm -hmm. And it is challenging. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly, incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so they say that actually some of the most difficult months for for couples are right after they get married and right after they have their first child. Because we kind of go into things very optimistic, which is awesome. But there's also this like fantasy world that we like to live in that takes us out of reality. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So when did things, so how long did, how did the the therapy go? And with the midwife, like how long was that going on? Did you at any point go on medication? Right. What was your healing process like? Because I know that you also then, you became suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, we saw the therapist who right off the bat said, listen, um, women with postpartum depression, we immediately suggest that they, um, go to therapy while taking meds. Um, So there was three factors, therapy, meds, and support at home. Those were the three. Um, And so she said, you've got to get on meds. And I immediately rejected the idea. Um, I'm more on the natural side. And throughout my life, I've had a few therapists say, hey, you should be on meds. And I've always said no, and then gotten through whatever Mm -hmm. I'm going through without Mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, no, I got this. I'm not going to get on Mm -hmm. meds. Um, But then that resentment grew in the relationship. And I just want to, you know, to any woman or man that's experienced postpartum depression right after having a child, like, I feel you. You know, I think the stats are when someone has postpartum depression, the the divorce rate or the separation rate is like 84, 85%. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, yeah. So the relationship was just kind of deteriorating. You know, there was resentment. I was angry and sad all the time. Also because we had only been together a year before I found out I was pregnant. So we had almost been together two years. He was questioning if he ever really knew me, you know, he's like, wait a second, who is this person? Um, And then I was blaming him. He was blaming me. We were fighting all the time, which just adds to everything. Um, And I remember our therapist saying, listen, three pillars, support at home, meds and therapy. You only have one. Um, Because, you know, my partner was trying his best, but there's only so much you can Mm -hmm. do when someone's suffering the Mm -hmm. way I was suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, I got to a point where... I, I became a little bit more open to meds. My my dad has Alzheimer's. So I was like, you know, dealing with losing him in, in some sort of way and like all of this. I mean, it was just honestly, I'm now I can say like, wow, I'm a strong woman. I, I got through wow. some stuff. Um, but I went to go see a doctor and oh, a friend of mine who had been through depression said, listen, you do take some meds for a year. And then get off of them. You know, you just need that kind of boost to get through this time. So the doctor put me on Prozac. And I took one pill. 
Okay, this is actually crazy. I took one pill in the morning, tiny little pill. And um, that night couldn't sleep, right? Which insomnia is one of the side effects. But the insomnia was so intense that like all of a sudden these like suicidal thoughts and like all of these dark thoughts just started pounding in my head. And I was terrified. And I kept waking up my boyfriend being like, hey, wake, wake up, please. Like, I'm really scared. Something's happening. I can't sleep. I'm having these crazy thoughts. I don't know what to do. And he's like, oh my, this, this is crazy. He doesn't know how to handle it. So then the next morning after an entire night of no sleep and complete anxiety, like I'm, I'm in the middle of, of one of the most intense panic attacks ever. Um, you know, he gets up to go to work and I'm like, no, 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 you, you can't leave. You can't leave. Something's wrong with me. It was almost like what you'd imagine a terrible drug trip to be like. You know, you hear stories of people like taking acid and then thinking they're never going to come out of it. That's how I felt. And this was one tiny little Prozac. Well, I think the scary thing too is that a lot of people turn to medicine when they're at their worst. Right. But I know other people who have, I thank God, I've been on medication before. I've mm-hmm. had positive experience mm-hmm. with it. But I know people who've like ended up in the hospital because of it. So it's like, totally. oh my God, if the medication doesn't work, then what do I do? Right. And sadly, the suicide, suicide rates are the highest between when people start meds between days one and eight of when they start meds. And I don't know if it's because, listen, I think that... There needs to be more regulation of just like passing out medications, Mm -hmm. you know, to give people these like mind altering drugs and just send them home Mm -hmm. seems a little bit risky to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, certain drugs work on some people and certain drugs work work on others. So it's really like this kind of guessing game and you just try different ones until something does the trick. Mm -hmm. And so Prozac was not the drug for me. Um, but sadly, like I was on suicide watch. It was this whole thing. I so mean, did you stop taking it or did you continue I, taking it? I mean, my doctor or my therapist were like, do not take another pill. So I stopped taking it. And of course, while all of this is happening, I'm just like on Google, you know, looking at the effects of, of, um, of antidepressants, what what's the word I'm thinking of, of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, you know what? I was right. I'm not going to take meds. So I didn't. And that was the beginning of the end, you know, because I really did need to be on meds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, things continued to crumble. It was just about a week before my daughter's first birthday and my parents came to town and this would be my dad's last trip to LA. So he comes out. I am finding everything to be too overwhelming to deal with. You know, my house is just like piles of laundry everywhere. My daughter is home with me and I like can't take it. I'm constantly looking for people to help me with childcare. You know, I'm just, it's like you can't breathe. Like I was like, I just need like this one little inhale, you know, and I couldn't find it. And my parents come to town, which usually is like, oh, yay, mom and dad are coming. Mm -hmm. It's my daughter's one year birthday. And they walk through the door and my dad falls and is confused about where he is. And I, oh, it was like the world just crashed on my shoulders. I almost hit my mom. I was like so angry. I I can feel it. It was like, 
like I was just like oh my gosh like everything is too much everyone just get away from me and I locked myself in a bathroom and you know let me just include that leading up to this I had just sat there and thought okay well this is how this is how my life goes I'm just gonna kill myself and that's just what's gonna happen and that's okay so many people do it and this is just my story you know and Charlie will know that I'm a good mom and you know and I just have these internal conversations right and so I locked myself in this bathroom and I just thought okay well I could grab a razor but that would be really bloody you know, I could hang myself. I mean, I just, I had, it, it's very interesting the conversation that I had because it was so matter of fact. There wasn't any like, oh no. It was just like, all right, well, how are we going to do this? Let's figure it out. And um, I started bawling, you know, I'm bawling crying while this is happening and I'm overwhelmed. And I called one of my best friends and I said, get me help. Just sitting on my bathroom floor. I was like, I am going to kill myself if someone doesn't fucking help me. And, you know, she got off the phone, called my other best friend. They called my partner. I walk out of the bathroom and my mom looks at me and goes, Nicole, we're getting you help. It is time. And I just, you know, I don't know. It's it's even hard to reflect on because, I, you know, you're in it. But you don't realize that you're really in it until people are like, okay, whoa. Yeah. You know, and honestly, without people going whoa in the way that they did, I probably just would have legitimized my own suicide to the point of me just doing it. I'm just, you know, you don't really think it's that bad. Yeah. When you're in it. Yeah. You're just another person that is going to kill themselves. Yeah. You know? And you also convince yourself that. There's no way you can possibly get better. Oh, oh my God. I was like, well, we tried Prozac. Yeah. That didn't work. Yeah. You know, what are we going to do now? Yeah. And also, you know, just the stigma yeah. around being on antidepressants and being one of those ones that's on, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, I don't want to be someone. Yeah. My entire life I've said no to drugs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was. It feels ooh. like a life sentence. It feels like a life sentence. It feels like, oh my God, this is. I'm going to be the depressed one. And on top of that, you know, and this is no fault to anyone that hasn't dealt with depression, but when you're, when you're the depressed one, it is so beyond isolating because we live in a world where it's like positive vibes only Mm -hmm. surround yourself with sunshine, Mm -hmm. you know, choose your tribe wisely. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, what? What about all of the people that are really suffering? Yeah. Can't we make a little room for them? Of course, yes, it's important to be around people that like build you up, mm-hmm. but it's also important to be there for people that can't build yeah. themselves up. Yeah. And so I just remember feeling like um, I was a burden, you know, like I think at one point I, I thought to myself, yes, my parents will be sad, but it'll be so much easier for them if I'm not here. Everyone will just be happier without having to deal with me. And I think that's a conversation a lot of people with depression mm-hmm. actually have. Yeah. So from that point, bathroom floor, what happened? So um, we went to see our therapist and she sat down with us for two hours and basically said, Nicole, I'm not letting you out of this office until we have you um, enrolled in a 
in an inpatient facility. Um, and sadly, uh, there was one postnatal psychiatric inpatient facility from here to North Carolina, and it was shut down due to lack of funding. You're kidding. <laughs> so it was in Long Beach Community Hospital. But basically, she got on the phone with the, um, the doctors there, and they said even though the floor for postnatal care is shut down, we'll put her in the regular psychiatric facility and just have our postnatal specialists come and help her. So I had to check myself into a psych ward. How long were you there for? Um, two or three nights, two nights. I was, this was in Long Beach? This was in Long Beach. Okay. Amazing care. And I do have to say, knowing me and how much I care, I care about other people, I found so much purpose in being there. Mm-hmm. You know, I was definitely the healthiest person there and mm-hmm. I was really sick. You know, I was in, I was in a psych ward. There were mm-hmm. people dealing with some very confronting stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just felt so much love for them and I wanted to help them, you know, and I remember the therapist that was working with me, she was like, well, you, you know, basically what they did is they monitored, um, they monitored me while they started me on a new drug on Zoloft, which worked. Thank goodness. Um, but once they, you know, once I had ticked all the boxes and I was in the clear, they said, okay, you can go home. And it was my daughter's one year birthday. How powerful is that? Right. So they're like, you can go home. And I was like, oh, I really want to go home. but I kind of I like helping everyone here. <laughs> I've made so many friends. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, I was released on my daughter's one year birthday. Wow. Yeah. And so from there, you were on medication. The medication there, was working. Yeah, I'm still on Zoloft. Okay. I am currently slowly weaning. It is a, a process. Thing. It is such a process. I These went off things. mine too fast. And it yeah. was, I had some pretty gnarly. Oh, did you try the cold turkey? Like, I didn't go cold turkey, but I went like three weeks. Oh, my, oh my God. It's supposed to be like six months. Oh, yeah. Oh. If not longer. The withdrawal symptoms? I had the gnarliest um, uh, vertigo. Oh, vertigo, almost like almost throwing up, panic attacks. Did you try to go cold turkey? No. So it was actually kind of unintentional. Like I take one 50 milligram pill at night, every other night. Mm -hmm. So I think 50 milligrams is subtherapeutic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really just to keep the withdrawal symptoms at Mm -hmm. bay. Um, And I've been so busy lately. I've been like just really focused on my business and and really operating at this new and exciting level because I'm finally better, which it took me about a year mm-hmm. to of, of taking the meds to finally mm-hmm. get quote unquote better or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and one night I was up until three in the morning working and I wasn't going to take my pill at three in the morning because I'll be so tired the next morning. Then the next night I was so tired I fell asleep putting my daughter to sleep. So I like fell asleep at 7 p.m. And then woke up the next day and was like, or, and then I, I think it was on my third night without it. And I was like, oh, crap. I haven't taken my Zoloft in three nights. And that day was brutal. My neighbor came over because I was having such bad panic attacks. Oh you know, you kind of start to feel a little bit suicidal again because you're, you're just so uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, so that was a good learning lesson, mm-hmm. but I am weaning, yeah. um, and I've done a lot of research around 
how to wean. There's an amazing psychiatrist in New York named Kelly Brogan. Have mm-hmm. you heard of her? Mm-hmm. I love she's in her. The, she's in the documentary Heal. Have you seen oh, her? Oh, yeah. Is she in that? That's so funny. I've seen that. Maybe I didn't know who she was when I okay. watched the documentary. Because Anthony William is in it as well. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah I love that documentary. But I, you know, started reading her um, her blog and all the information mm-hmm. on her website and just really focusing on nutrition and exercise and, um, you know, and all of those those things that we kind of overlook when mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. when we're healing depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about this because I find this really important. I was saying to you earlier that I feel a large part of me being able to stay off of my medication is the changes that I've made within my diet, right? specifically through medical medium, which some people really don't agree with him. They think he's crazy. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. So gifted. Yeah. And you also follow his protocols. I do. And prior to celery juice. (laughs) (laughs) Celery juice. Celery juice. It's so simple. It's so So simple. Um, Yeah, but prior to celery juice, which, by the way, Whole Foods is almost always sold out of. Are they? It's crazy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, Prior to celery juice, I was probably drinking like three, four cups of coffee a day. Mm. Just so fatigued. I mean just tired you know Mm -hmm. I'm working a lot I have a three-year-old I'm taking Zoloft Mm -hmm. and um yeah I mean now just even switching from a cup of coffee in the morning to a cup of celery juice or 16 Mm -hmm. ounces I have so much energy I feel so alive in the morning um so yeah I mean something that simple can make a really big impact and then in diet like you know, I did his cleanse, so I was pretty much eating raw, but definitely all fruits and vegetables and then his heavy metal detox. Mm-hmm. So just eating incredibly clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can actually feel your energy yeah. lift, like mm-hmm. your vibration yes. I shifts. I swear I can feel my my cells like vibrating when I drink totally. that smoothie. completely agree completely agree and then of course once I ended the 28 days I like had some gluten like I ate some bread or something and I had some dairy whoa when you've cleansed on that level and then you reintroduce not only do I notice how they physically affect me like little bumps on my arms a little bit of eczema or the fatigue starts to creep back in but also emotionally it just changes everything. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's really interesting. So yeah, I do love how Kelly Brogan is really focused on this holistic um, look, this holistic scope, right, mm-hmm. of, of depression and anxiety mm-hmm. and all of these other mental illnesses. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know a whole lot about her approach, but one thing that we were talking earlier also about Anthony William Medical Medium mm-hmm. is his like gentle approach yeah it sounds really intense it's like drinking celery juice every day making a smoothie my parents think i'm nuts when i'm home they're like you drink (laughs) celery juice and you make the same smoothie every day yep but i'm dedicated to it it's like taking medication totally and honestly you're taking a pill that causes these withdrawal symptoms and like fatigue i mean the side effects of antidepressants it's a long Uh, list right i mean we all hear it in the commercials or whatever and so really just to get back to this basic fundamental idea yeah. that food is the medicine yeah um it's really exciting yeah it's really exciting it provides a lot of hope for me personally because yeah. i'm like oh you yeah. know i can just eat a lot of cilantro and possibly mm-hmm. you know um prevent alzheimer's yeah. in the future right because yeah. he talks a lot about 
um, neurological diseases mm-hmm. and, and heavy metal toxins. Mm-hmm. So, and also just to kind of look at um, how much toxic stuff mm-hmm. is in our system. Mm-hmm. Even passed, on the day we're born. Oh, yes, it's yes. passed on. Yes. I was just listening to him say that um, babies, like, we're, I think nine out of ten people have a sluggish liver, something like yes, that. Yes, yes. And babies are born with sluggish liver. Yes, and we're all born with mercury in our blood. Yeah. And mercury is what caused all of the um, insane as- uh, asylums, right? Back yeah. in whenever that was. But he has like a whole chapter dedicated to this. And he also talks about mercury playing a huge role in depression. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. And he talks about postpartum depression. He actually says that adrenal fatigue mm. is a major cause of postpartum depression. Because if you're a woman who's already operating with severe adrenal fatigue and then you go through labor which is just like an adrenaline plunge then your body isn't actually able or your your adrenals aren't able to create the hormones needed to actually feel the joy and all of those rewarding emotions after having a child Mm -hmm. so you're just kind of stuck yeah in this place yeah and it's because your adrenals are shot so that was really interesting as well yeah yeah, and he's also very supportive of people being on meds, which I like. Mm-hmm. He's yep. like, they are. I mean, it's not the. It's not a life sentence again. Right, right. Listen, Western support. medicine, mm-hmm. when it's needed, it's so important. It's life saving. Honestly, I mean, who knows where I would be yeah, without? Same. Yeah. I had a similar situation where I had a total mental breakdown, suicidal, with while my parents were in town, and everyone was like, my my boyfriend was visiting from London, and it was like. Mm. what how did we not know it was this bad yep so i ended up in you know kind of a similar place but ended up going on the medication but now i'm off of it and i swear swear by my celery juice and my heavy metal oh yeah oh yeah it really makes the transition and like i said i'm slowly weaning and so part of taking out zoloft is incorporating kind of new natural um elements or mm-hmm. practices mm-hmm. that can support me yeah. in in living yeah. a healthy, happy, depression-free life. Yeah. 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 And mm-hmm. you'll get there. I mean, without the medication, you'll be there. You oh, know? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Absolutely. you believe that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I am like firing on all cylinders, yeah. feeling so good. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, once I can get the Zoloft out, yeah. then I think I'm going to go try ayahuasca. Oh. I know. <laughs> That's something that I think I'm too sensitive for, but yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of reading and a lot of listening to other people talk about the impact and and effect that it's had. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking into it. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, several people that it's been incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I think my nervous system's too sensitive for it. Right. Right. But well, also, you know, it's great at healing trauma. Yeah. And I do feel like even though I'm in this really great stable place and I'm very focused and building something and like life is good right Mm -hmm. now, I just want to set myself up for success Mm -hmm. and just make sure that I've really healed Mm -hmm. all of those little areas Mm -hmm. where where things could be hiding. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your business, but before we go into that, I want to talk really quickly about... um, you're now a single mother. Oh, yes. How long have you been a single mother for? You know, it's pretty new. Although I do have to say, like, um, we've pretty much been separated for a year and a half. Just kind of living life under the same roof. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd say 
truly separated for a few months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's a grind. Okay. It's a grind. What's yeah. that like? What is, you mentioned that you're co-parenting and yeah. what is that? What yeah. looks like your... So right now what we're doing, because our daughter is turning three next month, um, and she's in this really like beautiful yet sensitive stage of her life. And it's it's hard for her. It's confusing. You know, she talks a lot about mommy, daddy, and Charlie, you mm, know, and mm-hmm. let's go all together. And where's daddy? Why isn't daddy here? And is daddy coming back? And so something that one of our therapists um, suggested to us is using our home as a nest. So she stays there and we cycle mm. in and out. It's not wow. that easy for parents, but it's very supportive for a child, um, especially at this age where they can't really make sense. I mean, they yeah. can, but it's, you know, it's hard for yeah. them to understand. Yeah. Um, so I guess the schedule kind of looks like, um, you know, Tuesday nights he's there with her and I, you know, uh, work from a friend's home and then I come once she's asleep. And then Thursday night, he's at home with her all night and Saturday night. So those are the nights where I stay with a friend in Venice. And, you know, it's it's actually kind of nice just to have a little bit of a break and focus on me again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's there's challenge. There's pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, yeah, we have a schedule. We stick to it. We follow it. We're now in a place where we can kind of compromise and work together when mm-hmm. there's scheduling conflicts. Mm-hmm. But it did take a, a little bit of work to mm-hmm. get there. Um, and I don't know what the like what the long term vision is. Mm-hmm. You know, I still love him immensely, and um, you know, I'm just doing. I'm just taking time to really focus on myself, mm-hmm. which I didn't. I mean, honestly, for the past three years. Um, and who knows where that will lead. And I hope that that's what we're both doing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think that there's there's still love there and that there always will be. But, you know, like I said, when you're dealt the hand that we were dealt, you know, the odds, the odds are against us. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, but single mom life is um, it's very empowering for me personally. Because, again, it's just a testament to my strength, which I didn't know I had. Um and yeah, it's, um, you, I, I kind of feel like I just, I'm not in survival mode, but maybe I am. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, okay, I am going to build something amazing for my daughter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, yeah. But I'm also being like very careful about health decisions, right? So like, I don't drink anymore. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm just very careful mm-hmm. you know because when you're a sing- when I'm you know as a single mom I'm very like um I don't know it's like I've, I want to be very present mm-hmm. to everything and make sure that I'm making decisions from a really healthy place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you've been now working on this business that's really where you've been putting your energy yeah so tell me about that oh my goodness <sighs> so the business is called the femme it stands for the Female Empowerment Movement. Um, I came up with the idea when Charlie was just a little infant baby. So it was shortly after I was diagnosed with depression, postpartum depression. Um, and I found a need for a community, a space where women could go get some work done, take a shower, exercise, Um, take a nap 
and if they're a mom, have their kids watched um, in the same space. And this was before Donald Trump became president, before a lot of co female co-working spaces that we have now existed. Um, and so there was so much energy. There still is. But, like, it was really the beginning of this women's movement. It was before the, the first big march mm -hmm. and just an exciting time. And so I remember thinking, like, yes, you know, mm -hmm. this is perfect and I'm going to do this and I'm going to create this. But um, if you're someone that's had depression, it's really hard to start a business mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're sick. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been working on it for about three years now, just it would get momentum and then the depression would take over and, you know, um, but luckily there have been a core team of women that have been working on this, um, with me from inception. So the FEM, what is it? The FEM is, um, a social enterprise that provides uh, wellness and workspaces for women. And we offer our memberships on an income based sliding fee scale. Um, so what's important to us is that women everywhere have access to safe and affordable wellness and workspaces. You know, so this isn't an exclusive space. It's incredibly inclusive. Um, uh, and yeah, it's kind Most of a of the hub. spaces have been very, what feel exclusive, if I can, yeah. In yes. Life, female spaces. Yes, yes, yes. So, I mean, without judging the female spaces of too much not. that are out there, yes. You know, they have high membership fees. And also, uh, there's a few that have a wellness component, but for the most part, it's female co-working spaces. Um, and so you're paying, you know, 250 bucks to pop open your laptop somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they, they do have amazing events and programming in a lot mm -hmm, of these spaces, mm -hmm. but we really just want to make a community that's welcoming and accessible to all. So we also have a nonprofit arm, um, the Femme Foundation. And this is... Of course, I mean, I'm excited about all of it, but this is like really exciting for me because the foundation um, is what makes our mission and our work available to a larger population of women. So this enables us to um, create events and programming for women in shelters or local women's prisons um, or, you know, uh, partnering organizations. So I kind of envision like, you know, going and teaching yoga or meditation practices to women that are in a domestic violence shelter, um, empowering mothers with the gift of healthy cooking. So partnering with an organization that does that, um, and having the femme volunteers kind of really go into underserved communities and help women, you know, it's an exciting time. Don't get me wrong. The women's movement is awesome. The wellness movement is awesome. But there's an opportunity for us to really expand here mm -hmm. and make this for, for more women. Accessible. Because, yeah, because there's millions of women that feel very left out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's because of their income or their political beliefs um, or their race, religion, size, shape, color. I mean, you whatever, right? You name it. Um, there is a woman out there that's going, well, wait a second. What about me? And so how can we create a community that's, um, that says, come join us, mm -hmm. you know? And, and also the reason that that's so important to me is because when I was in my deepest, darkest place, you know, financial crisis, lost my job, you know, had no idea what the future looked like. And I just thought, well, why isn't there somewhere out there like the femme? And also 
if I'm barely surviving this, how are women with less resources surviving? You know, so um, Mm -hmm. I've always been incredibly passionate about helping the whole. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think I said earlier, like now I realize why I went through all of that. Mm -hmm. And so to anyone out there that's suffering or, you know, feeling stuck, I just really want to say like, for me, my, my life's pain led me to my purpose. And so there is an opportunity for, for people out there, especially women to take all of this trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really, and trauma that's passed down from our ancestors, right. To take all of that and to turn it into our purpose and for us to heal the planet. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's what I'm up agree. to. <laughs> Good. That's amazing. Yeah. When is that launching? So we have, we're, okay, so what we're doing is we're launching with um, wellness and work pop-up days. Um, and those launch 11-11, 2018. So just mm-hmm. in a few weeks here in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and our first event is going to be in downtown. Um, we have the class by Taryn Toomey. If you haven't experienced the class, I could not recommend I it more. Really <gasps> oh. I know there's one on Abbott Kinney, right? Um, I don't think there's one on Abbott Kinney. They pretty much just have pop-ups here. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. So okay. they started in the Hamptons and in New York, yeah. and I know they have a few facilities there, but okay. I'm pretty sure they just have pop-ups here. I'm sorry okay. if I'm wrong about that. But yeah, I go to their pop-up up in the Palisades on Friday. Um, and really, I mean, it's just so healing. You know, movement is such a great mm-hmm. tool for healing. Mm-hmm. And so when you combine movement and then the camaraderie mm-hmm. of like the, the everyone that's in that room is working together to mm-hmm. get that vibration raised. And then they design it to where you're like, you're at the brink everything in your mind because you're holding a movement or you're doing a um like a a repetition of a movement that's really challenging everything in your mind is like oh my god this is too hard like I'm gonna throw up or I'm gonna faint or something but then the teacher just really like leads you to you know through that story you know that that Mm -hmm. that's that voice Mm -hmm. that makes you want to quit and you just release wow something I've i mean amazing things yeah my class. first class i was like bawling crying just like <laughs> i'm like is this sweater is this tears yeah, i don't know that's the best feeling yeah so we were so honored to have them on board for our launch um and yeah we have a bunch of amazing sponsors and and people involved and really it's going to be our launch event is going to be a day of of self-care and sisterhood and you want to go worldwide with this? Yes. So we're launching with this series of pop-up work, uh, wellness and work days. And then we want to open doors in 2019. We're going to open two locations simultaneously in LA. Um, and then, of course, we our, our plan is to open locations all over the country and then all over the world because the need is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're doing next summer is pretty exciting. I almost don't even want to talk about it. Because it's all in the okay. works, and okay. I don't want to share it you yet until it's all ready. Okay. But yeah, we are we are going to take the femme um, worldwide. Amazing. Yeah, so it's exciting. If you want to check out more, you can go to thefem.com. Um, and you know, if you're a woman that wants Amazing. to sign up, please do. <laughs> That's so exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. <gasps> oh, how But fun. honestly, it's like everything has led me to this. Like, of yeah. course I went through all of that. Yeah. Of course, yeah. you know, so. It's so amazing to like sit here and listen to you talk about this because as you, you've gone through it, I mean, I can feel just how intense it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to see you 
I mean, you, you're like, so, but you're buzzing (laughs) with this energy for your next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I just, you know, mm, I just want women everywhere, really people everywhere again, that are suffering to know that like one day it'll all make sense. I was going to ask you, there's a few questions I kind of toss around at the Mm -hmm. end, but asking what like your greatest lesson has been, but it sounds like it's just like knowing, knowing that it's all yeah you know I think we in we've been raised right society kind of tells us that like pain grief suffering all of these feelings are yeah I guess their their feelings or experiences are really negative so we're kind of programmed to resist them and to judge them but I invite people to welcome them with open arms Mm -hmm. because looking back I'd say If someone had told me when I was little, it's okay to be sad. That's just part of who you are. And it's going to lead you somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, wow, what a different relationship I would have had Mm -hmm. with myself and and with everything that happened in my life. And so, um, yeah, just know that, like, it's all going to make sense one day. And and you can survive it, you know. Mm -hmm. And, like, there is so much light at the end of the tunnel. I truly believe that the more pain someone has been through, like the more like power and purpose and passion at the end of that, you know, on the other side of that. So that's why it's really exciting for women right now, because I think women collectively have been through so much. So we have a really big opportunity here to turn this into something incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And another question I like to ask is, are there any resources, um, for me, there were a few books, or was there anything that you feel? I've asked in the past if there's three books that you loved or something, but right. but is there anything that that like really struck a chord with you through your healing process? Ooh, yeah. I mean, I would recommend any woman going through mental illness to, you know, thoroughly read Kelly Brogan's website. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of information there. Great. A lot of information too on like this whole myth that I that the medical medium talks about about serotonin mm-hmm. levels, and is that really why depression's caused? So mm-hmm. I just you know everyone can make their own mm-hmm. decisions and mm-hmm. judgments or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Kelly Brogan is definitely someone that that changed a lot of ideas in my head and shifted them. Um, who else? Medical medium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just love him, and even though he's a recent read, he's made a a really big impact. Um, and what else? Um, movement. So there's only one proven way to change your mind. And that is through movement. Wow. Yeah. So when we start to shift our, our, or change our, our physiological makeup, right. Then we can start to change what's happening in our minds. So Something really powerful um, is just like to wake up in the morning and dance, but like really shaking yourself out. Yeah. Scream, you know, do a lot of voice work where you're like yelling. I mean, your neighbors will probably think you're nuts, (laughs) but who cares? You know? And so if you're feeling really stuck or down, get up and move. Mm -hmm. Just do it. I don't care. Just just do it. And that's such good advice. Yeah. It's so, so true. Yeah. So movement, movement, movement. And that doesn't mean you have to go exercise because people used to tell me that when I was yeah. depressed. Yeah. I'm like, it's not that easy. Right. Um, but just like 
move in your mm-hmm. living room and mm-hmm. shake up your body. Shake it out. Yeah. Because energy gets stuck. It really does. Energy gets stuck. And even just like, you know, people can't see me, but just like <laughs> flinging your arms out yeah. and focusing on what's bothering you. Yeah. It releases it from your body yeah. and it's really, really good and juicy. Yeah. It's yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I think that's the end. <gasps> That's the end. <laughs> Unless you have anything Thanks else. Thanks for listening to my life story. I hope I provided something. No, it was so good. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, it was yeah. so powerful. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's always interesting when people want to talk about like... I know, but know. like you were saying, you know, this isn't necessarily... I don't... I feel that this is maybe like a small piece of my purpose. Yeah. I'm doing this podcast for other people and yeah. for myself same thing it's kind of like a self-healing but because I was in such a dark place and just felt so alone and I was like people need to know that other people go through this oh yeah and that but that everyone's story is unique but that but I just want people to know that there's other people suffering and that they're getting through it and that it's okay yes you're not alone you are not I alone. always use that hashtag yeah. you are not alone yeah yeah, it's it's not only you, you yeah. know, and it's so easy to believe that. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. don't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And get up and move. That's, <laughs> that's my sign off. Get up and move. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Joan. I've put all information from this episode in the show notes. So if you forgot to write down the name of a book or a doctor, you can find it there. I want to thank my editor, Clay Carnell, who has been so patient with me. I want to thank Mike Lachome for providing the theme music that he so beautifully and thoughtfully created. I want to thank Jen Perron for creating our amazing logo. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Thank you so much, truly from the bottom of my heart.